You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. I'm also uh, excited to announce today that we're going to be starting off on a new journey through the Gospel of Luke. So, really excited about that. And if you're wondering, yes, we did plan to start the series with the season of Advent because it just makes sense and because Blair and I are super smart. Um, (laughs) No, for real though, it's because it starts with the season of Advent. We're talking about the story of Christmas. And um, speaking of Advent, as as we've been reminded a couple times already this morning, today's theme is on hope. And I can't think of a better time for us to be reminded of the hope in which we have as Christians. Because, man, I don't know about you guys, but after hearing uh, Premier Kenny's announcement on Tuesday about no social contact and kids being home from school and all and everything else, I was feeling pretty dejected. I was, I was feeling pretty downcast. Like, when will this ever end, right? Any amens? Um, and, and, and to top it off, we had to inform our youngest son, Elliot, that his birthday plans had to be postponed. And so that was crushing. Um, you know, throughout this whole year, I've managed to stay above ground thus far. But for some reason, this week's announcements were, were just crushing to my soul. I wanted to curl up into a ball and just say, I'm done with this. Find me when it's all over, if it ever ends. And maybe you can relate to that. I don't know. Um, But what I do know is that it's in times like these when I'm incredibly thankful for passages like Psalm 43.5, which says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalm preaches right to the heart, right? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Don't don't dwell on the issue. Don't dwell on the things that are bringing you down. Hope in God. He's our salvation. His promises are sure. He is the God of all hope, a hope hope which Romans 5.5 reminds us is a hope that will not lead to disappointment. And this is important for us to grasp because these days I think we we either tend to place our hope in the wrong things like the government or money or or whatever else, which ends up failing us, or else we tend to use the word hope so loosely that that it actually loses its true meaning, right? And that's not really something we can hold on to. We we say optimistic things like, oh, I, I really hope there's a vaccine next year. I hope... My team wins the championship. I hope I get a present from Santa Claus. I hope Pastor Greg doesn't use another Lord of the Rings reference in his sermon. Right? We, 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 we say stuff like that. See what I mean? Our, our hopes are often synonymous with, with flimsy wishes. Right? Where we really want something to happen or we really want something to be true. And we may even get really optimistic about it. But yet, we can't be sure. We can't really, really trust in it, and quite often we're just blindly hoping in the idea of hope itself. And if that's what hope is, that's, that's what we've made it, right? But if that's what hope is, then it's not much to write home about. 
If it's just a shot in the dark, if it's a looking for a needle in a haystack, if it's a one in, one in a million chance or even a one in a hundred chance, if that's all it is, a glorified maybe, then it's certainly not worth placing our faith in. It certainly isn't something that's going to help us or help us get through. If it's just wishing upon a star, let's be honest, it's pretty hopeless. And hopelessness is a root, not the root, but our root, of our seasons of despair and uncertainty. But the story of Christmas reminds us that hope placed in God and His promises is is something that we can be confident in. Hebrews tells us that our faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So the key word here being assurance. So not maybe, not possibly, but assuredly, definitely, certainly. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we can read that this was the whole purpose with which Luke wrote the Gospel, to give us certainty that the promises of God have been fulfilled through Jesus Christ in order to give us certainty that Jesus is the one who we should follow in faith and hope. Listen to this introduction. He's writing to, to a man named Theophilus. We don't really know who he is. He might have been uh, someone representing Paul in, in, uh, legally in Rome when he was in prison, or he could be some other uh, Christian person. We don't know. But this, he's writing to this guy, and this is what he says. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right? That you may have certainty. So Luke, he's, he's an established doctor. He's a friend of the Apostle Paul. He compiled this narrative with the accounts of eyewitnesses precisely so that those who read it would have certainty. Certainty in Jesus, certainty that God was faithful to his promise through him. And according to to my sources, this this first paragraph that we just read of Luke was, was actually one long, beautifully structured Greek sentence written in the same syntax and structure of Greek historical records from the same era. So he's using the same, same syntax and structure of Greek historical records. And this tells us two things specifically. It tells us a lot of things, but two things specifically. One was that Luke was intelligent and well-educated. And two, that Luke wrote this to be a historically reliable account of Jesus' life. He's not interested in hearsay or rumors or wishful thinking, or blind faith, right? He's interested in what's certain and true. And this is what biblical hope is, certain and true. Because God is certain and true to both his character and his promises, as Blair read earlier from Hebrews 10, because he is reliable. Therefore, hope in him is something that we can place our faith in and look forward to, something that keeps us motivated, that can carry us through the day and get us up in the morning, a finish line, a, a light at the end of tunnel that at the end of the tunnel that we can follow. 
something that keeps us moving forward in faith in any circumstance. It's not just something cool or preferable that we'd like to happen or that could happen. Biblical hope, grounded in the evidence of God's past faithfulness, gives us a glimpse and a promise of what will happen. It's not just something that could happen. It's something that will happen. In fact, when we hope in God and His future promises, we can actually be so certain that they'll take place that we can rejoice today as if they already have and therefore live our lives in light of it. That's how powerful hope is in God. And again, Jesus' birth became the exclamation mark and proof positive of this hope. 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He's the personification, exclamation, and confirmation of our certain hope. He, he's who God's people have been waiting and longing for, as, as we learned during the kids' message, right? He's the Messiah and, and King of Kings who, who the prophets had prophesied and, and pro- prophesied and promised on behalf of God at least 360 times throughout Scripture. He's who, who the world and all of creation had been groaning for. He's who the Gentiles unknowingly hoped for to bring us from the darkness of sin into the light of life. And he's who John the Baptist, Baptist was tasked and anointed by the Holy Spirit to prepare the way for. He is the hope of God for our salvation. Right? Why so downcast, O oh my soul, put your hope in Jesus, who is the hope of God our salvation. And, and this is why Romans 5.2 declares, we have also obtained access through Jesus by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So as Christians, we are not without hope. We have, we have the most certain hope. We're born again into a living hope that will not disappoint us or put us to shame. As Marshall Siegel writes, this hope is as alive as Jesus is right now. And therefore, as, as, as we look upon this evidence of hope born to us at Christmas and in turn remember God's perfect faithfulness to his promise to send his son to redeem the world, this should also then give us confidence in, in his promise to raise us up into eternal life and also in the hope that one day Jesus will come again in victory to make all things new. And this also means that we should be a people of hope, living in light of that promise and those promises, in expectation of them, and in bringing that hope to the world. But let's be honest. In the everyday rhythms of life and in the midst of all the chaos and and the trials and and the hopelessness in the world right now, it's not always easy to cling to that hope, is it? In fact, if if we do look at the evidence, if we're honest and we look at the evidence in our lives and, and how we react to situations, quite often with fear or anxiety or stress or anger or uncertainty or despair or frustration, I think I, think I can assume more often than not, we either forget this hope in, in our day-to-day lives or alternatively we become cynical or doubtful of it. Not unlike Zechariah, when the angel Gabriel appeared with news of incredible hope for him, his wife, and the world, 
we, we heard that read during the Advent reading. What we didn't hear is his response to it and how he's very cynical to it. So let's back up a bit. What we heard in the Advent reading was that Zechariah was a righteous man, that he and his wife lived faithfully unto the Lord, and being a priest of the temple of God, that day it fell on him to be the, the one who would burn the daily incense before the Lord at his altar. And this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for priests back then, since there were so many priests. So this is probably the only time he ever got to do this. And I should also mention that the purpose of that burning of incense was to offer that sweet fragrance to the Lord as a symbol of intercession between God and his people. A large number of which would have been outside the temple praying and waiting for Zechariah to come back out with a blessing for them when he was done burning the incense. On that note, it's also likely that he would have prayed a psalm of hope and mercy for the nation of Judea in that moment as well. So this was a moment of great piety. You'd think a man like that would be just filled with with hope. (laughs) But then all of a sudden, he sees an angel right in front of him. And of course, it fills him with great fear because, uh, you know, an angel's dressed in the presence of God and the glory of God, right? So he's filled with great fear but, the, but then Gabriel, this angel, tells him not to be afraid. He's not there to punish him or anything like that. He's, here, he's there to bring good news, news of gladness, news of joy. He tells Zechariah that his prayers have been heard. His prayers have been heard and that his wife would have a baby named John who would also be anointed by the Spirit of God to prepare God's people to receive their coming Messiah. This, this is incredible news. This is a, amazing news. Yet, it's met with little enthusiasm. It seems like Zechariah maybe had given hope, given up hope that God was actually hearing his prayers or that he would live to see them answered because he doesn't respond with excitement. Instead, he responds to this message of amazing hope with unbelief. He basically tells the angel Gabriel, yeah, right, it can't be. Right? He, he says in Luke 1.18, listen to this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I appreciate, he's really polite here. He doesn't call his wife old. That's kind of nice. He calls himself old, and, and my wife is advanced in years. He's careful just in case she's listening. <laughs> But anyways, Zechariah hears this message of hope, of a promise that that him and his wife had been most likely personally longing for their whole life, their whole marriage, their whole married life, right? And then he says, no, that's impossible. At least, you know, maybe give me some sort of sign so I can know for sure. And, And I think many of us can relate to him here. We, we offer up our prayers to God, specific prayers for our personal lives and even overarching prayers for His kingdom to come. But when we don't see them answered in the timeline that we'd like, or we don't see them answered in how we expect them to, we tend to start giving up hope, right? That God even hears our prayers, much less that we'll see them answered. Right? Yet this story is a, is a reminder for us that God does hear our prayers. 
He keeps a log of every single one of them. But it's also a reminder that he knows better than us in, in how, to, how and when to answer them, right? His will and plan are higher than our understanding. So we need not give up hope in our God because he's faithful to his promises and to his children. So even in this moment of, of great piety, we have to ask, why had, had he given up hope? Why had Zechariah given up hope? Well, we have to understand the context that he's living in. First of all, this was most likely a pretty hopeless time for him, both personally and as a, a citizen of Judea. The country of Judea, in fact, was currently occupied by Roman rule. Not fun. Not only that, but as a nation, they, they also hadn't heard from God in over 400 years. Not since God spoke to them through the prophet Malachi, a promise which the Old Testament ends with a promise that, that, that is the very promise which Gabriel tells Zechariah his son is going to fulfill, which is pretty cool. But he misses that. And to top it off, their king, Herod, we've all heard of King Herod if you heard the Christmas story, he was just a puppet king for the Romans and was as evil and as selfish as you could get. So there was not much to hope in back then, at that time. Life was pretty dreary. And so, of course, God's promises would have felt and seemed far off and from another time. I'm sure if you traveled there in the days of Herod, many would tell you, just as Eomir, knight of Rohan, confessed to Aragon in The Lord of the Rings, when he said, do not trust to hope, it has abandoned these lands. What I tell you, if you, if you were hoping for, uh, that I wouldn't use a Lord of the Rings quote, it's a flimsy wish. Anyways, politically speaking, hope seemed lost for God's people. But personally speaking as well, I think it's safe to assume that hope also seemed lost for him and his wife Elizabeth and their desire to have children. And so, yes, they remained faithful to God in their lives according to his law and commandments, but yet we can safely assume by his reaction that their prayerful desire and hope for God to provide them with a child had been long since abandoned. It seemed in their old age that they'd already accepted the inevitable reality that children would not be in the picture. And they've kind of settled on that. And this was probably especially hard on Elizabeth, as women in those days were often the ones who were shamed or reproached for being barren, um, as Tabati Anyabwile writes, I'm probably saying his name wrong and I apologize, but this is what he writes. He says, Elizabeth must have felt broken and to blame. She was the one who was barren. What a desert-like word, dry, cracked, lifeless. When she was a younger woman, newly married to Zechariah, no doubt well-meaning people probably asked, when are you going to have children? As she began to age, they, they then began to say with concern in their voice, we are praying for you. Now in old age, they whispered around her, oh, she can't have children. Imagine how difficult it might have been for her to rejoice in the pregnancy of other women without feeling sorrow for her own barrenness. Elizabeth was well aware 
of what she called her disgrace among the people from verse 25. She felt stigma and shame. So that can't be easy, right? And so again, I'm sure that over time, their desire to have children turned into concern about whether they could actually have children until finally they probably just accepted the fact that they never would. In their old age, again, we can assume they'd given up hope for a child. And so we can't blame Zechariah for being hesitant here. This, this, this promise of a child who's also going to grow up to announce the, the coming of the Messiah, this two-for-one deal that, that he's getting, it, it all seems too good to be true. Because the truth is that when hope disappoints us, especially repeatedly, it's crushing. It's defeating. It's demoralizing. And so quite often if we've experienced that, then we become reluctant and almost unwilling to give hope another chance. Lest we get our hopes up falsely again and become disappointed and crushed by it again. We build that wall. And I'm sure many of us can relate to, to Zechariah's hesitation to trust and get his hopes up, up here again. But I'd argue that this is exactly where the root of, of the issue of his hesitation and unbelief lies, and that he's been hoping for something rather than in someone. As author Betsy St. Amant writes, it all boils down to a tiny preposition, in. Not hope for, hope in. All of the things we hope for are casting our hearts onto things, people, items, all guaranteed to fail us. Even the most happily ever after crafted story will fall short on some days. Spouses disappoint, friendships falter, health fades, finances crumble. Hoping for is a dangerous place to live for it's vague, distant, and grasping. Four is a shot in the dark. But when we hope in, we're putting our hope somewhere in someone, in a safe place, a place more than capable of holding all our fours. We're tucking our fours away inside the hands and heart of Jesus, and we're living out the biblical definition to expect with confidence and trust. And this message is, is basically what the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah after he questions him. Zechariah is like, yeah, right. How do I know? We're old. And then Luke 1, 19 to 20, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, which will be fulfilled in their time. So the angel Gabriel is like, excuse me? Right? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent by God. That 
in, in and of itself should have been enough proof that this promise was real. But yet it seems like Zechariah had his eyes on the problem and not on God. He was allowing his past disappointments, disappointments placed in misplaced expectations, along with the science and the practicality and the possibility of what he was being told, he was allowing those things to be his focus rather than focusing on God who is faithful and can do all things. In fact, didn't God do this very thing for Abraham and Sarah with their son Isaac? With his hope in God? He may have remembered this. But he misses it. And, but we do this too, right? Our intellect our doubt, our limited understanding of things, our false or misplaced expectations, along with the issues we're facing, often cloud our faith or get in the way of actually just trusting and believing in God to do what He says He's going to do, just as He always has. Not that we shouldn't use our brains. We should use our brains. Again, Luke himself is intellectual and educated. He wrote this gospel account to provide proof and certainty of Jesus' life and what he accomplished because he doesn't believe that faith is blind. But yet, no matter how smart we think we are, the truth is we can't know the mind of God. God is wiser and his thoughts are higher than ours. And so we should use our God-given brains. We should use our brains, but ultimately our hope shouldn't be rooted in our own understanding, but in God and the evidence of his faithfulness, the continued evidence of his faithfulness. And again, while Zechariah was certainly faithful in living for God, he would still have to learn the hard way with nine months of being mute, unable to speak. And so he'd definitely have a lot of time to think about what it means to hope in God, to think about His promises, and to think about the God who is, who is faithful and capable of miracles, who is capable of the impossible, who is capable of answering our prayers in ways we can't even imagine. As we'll learn in the coming weeks, Zechariah, along with his wife, does learn to hope in God by the time his son John is born. But let's quickly contrast his response to Mary's. Because six months later, the angel Gabriel appears to her as well to, to announce that she would give birth to Jesus. Though he comes to her not in, in this moment of great piety within the temple itself, like he did with Zechariah, rather he comes to her and announces this message in the lowly town of Nazareth as she's just going about her regular life. Listen to this, Luke 1, 26 to 38. It says, in the sixth month, that's the sixth month that Elizabeth was pregnant, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this is the very message of hope which, which the world trapped in sin and darkness was longing for. And, and Mary, a young woman from, from the lowly town of Nazareth, has been chosen and anointed by God to carry this hope within her womb. Through her, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, was coming into the world to save us from sin and usher in his kingdom. Amazing news. Then let's, note, let, let, let's look at the difference in Mary's response here. It's, it's slight, but it's significant, especially considering that from an intellectual or scientific perspective, what Gabriel tells Mary is way more impossible than what he promises Zechariah. And where Zechariah responds with unbelief by saying, how can this be? We're too old. Mary responds with faith, asking, how will this be since I am a virgin? So, you see the slight difference here? Mary's not doubting the message. Rather, she's inquiring how it will be accomplished. And when the angel Gabriel tells her that the Spirit of God will come upon her and that the Most High God will overshadow her, in other words, that Jesus will be, will be a miraculous conception by the power of God alone, and that it's only possible simply because nothing is impossible with God, where many of us would be like, yeah, right, she believes it. The difference between her and Zechariah is that her faith and hope was in God, not in her own understanding but rather in the God of that promise. And this is further evidenced when she declares, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is what it looks like to live by faith in God, to, to have an assurance of hope that what God promises, He will do, even if we don't get it. Even if it seems impossible, what God promises, He will do. And this is my, my prayer for us, that through Christ we would learn to live with our hope set on God and in God. As it says in Romans 15, 11 to 13, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So again, Jesus, that the root of Jesse, was born at Christmas for us, for you, for me, precisely so that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who Jesus was conceived by, we may believe in his name and abound in hope. Overflowing with hope in the God of salvation. Because of Jesus, we've been born into a living hope. So this is, it's a life change. It is life. It's with us now, and it's waiting for us in eternity. And so if you haven't already, or if you're feeling hopeless this morning, then I encourage you to refocus. Place your hope in the one who will not disappoint, in Jesus, the King. Let the evidence of what he's done for us and for his continued faithfulness instill in us by the power of his spirit an assurance and confidence of what he's going to do. And then let that confidence lead us into living our lives in light of that hope. I know that, and let's remember that this, that this hope isn't just for us. It's not meant to be hidden away in our hearts like a deep secret we're not allowed to tell or wrapped up neatly under the tree with just our name on it, right? Rather, it's, it's like the popular Christmas hymn declares, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. This hope which has been reveal it, revealed to us in Christ is a hope that the world is longing for. And like John the Baptist models, we're, we're meant to share it with the world. And it's no secret. We all know that this city, this, this province, this country, and this world is filled with many, way too many people living in hopelessness. Whether it's in poverty or anxiety or depression or sin or addiction or situations of abuse or loneliness especially during this time of pandemic and quarantines, right? People need to see and know hope. And we know where it is. We know who it is. And so we need to show the world where to find it. And we can start, first of all, by showing them what it looks like to be, to be examples and pillars of hope to the hopeless so in all this tragedy around us, the world should hear us and, and, and be like, how can they be so sympathetic and yet so hopeful? How can, they, how can they keep on going even in the midst of this mess? How can they rejoice when they don't have a job? How can they stand and sing praises to their God in the midst of a pandemic with masks on their faces? And we can tell them because Jesus is alive and we're alive with him. Another way we can show them hope is by personifying it ourselves and being the hope of Christ in the world. Whether that's feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, praying for the hurting, serving the poor and widows, and, and standing up for victims of injustice. Right? Secondly, then, we can convey hope by simply telling people. We can still talk with our masks on, right? We can tell people. We can proclaim to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christmas is, is a perfect time to do this. 
as, as Blair already challenged the kids, right? That's a challenge for us too, for you to go out and tell people about Jesus. And if that doesn't come natural to you, then, then start praying for opportunities and start praying for boldness to do it. Think of it this way. If, if, you're, if you're trapped on a desert island with a group of people, uh, but you hear on the radio that, that a boat's coming to, to pick you up and save you, are you going to keep this good news from the, the rest of the people on the island with you? No, immediately, you're going to like take the radio headphones off and immediately run and tell everyone about it, that, right? You're going to tell everyone about the salvation that's coming. And that's what we should be doing as Christians. And finally, while, while there are a lot more ways to display Christ's hope to the world, I'm going to end with this one from Romans 5, 1 to 2, which we, we read a little bit earlier. We're going to read it again. Therefore, it says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we show the world our hope by publicly rejoicing. So let me ask you this in closing. When we we take our eyes off of the issues or the things we lack or the things that we are hoping in but we don't, we don't have yet or we didn't get or didn't happen. Right? We take our eyes off of those things and instead see the magnitude and glory of our King. When, when we look unto Him who is able to do far more than we can imagine. When we look unto the hope that does not disappoint. When we think about how He humbly and miraculously came into the world to save us from our sin and how He's coming again in victory, how could we not rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? So let us rejoice with, with, with the view of that hope at the forefront of our minds and hearts and let us rejoice in such a way that the world will see us and know that true hope only comes from God through Jesus Christ, the promised King who was born on Christmas Day and who is certainly alive and with us and coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that your promises are meant to give us hope because your promises are sure, because you are reliable. Lord God, and I thank you that as we remember at Christmas morning when when Jesus was born, when Jesus came into the world, Lord God, it confirmed all your promises. It confirmed your faithfulness. And Lord, and let that, that confirmation give us certainty of hope in our lives today, Lord God. I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would you would you would make us believe in such a way that we would abound in hope. In hope for our salvation from sin, in hope that you are working in and through us right now, in in the hope that you are coming again to redeem the world and make all things new. I pray that you would teach us to live our lives in light of that hope and to also be pillars of your hope in this world, Lord God. And I pray for those that are here this morning or listening online, Lord God, that that are kind of in that place of of despair or brokenness or hopelessness, Lord God. 
And I pray that you would, your presence would be with them, that you would lift them up right now and remind them that you are faithful, that you are good, that you never give up, that your love is sure. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could meet with you this morning and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name.